Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. I'm here with Wade and we're going to continue our uh, very brief and quick run through church history using Mark Knoll's book, Turning Points. Uh, Last time we uh, talked, we were kind of post-Reformation, talking about counter-Reformation and Reformation within the Roman Catholic Church. We mentioned the Jesuits and their... um, Uh, their ability to start schools, maybe turn some lands back uh, towards the Catholic Church as they uh, spearheaded a a part of their reform in the Roman Catholic Church, a lot of it good, a lot of it bad, a lot of stuff that was uh, theologically the Council of Trent doubling down on things that uh, uh, Protestants as a whole, but specifically Lutherans, would disagree with, but also their mission work out into the world and to the East. Now we're going to turn ourselves to to England for a little bit. We'll be back on the continent with, uh, with Pietism and uh, Spainer. Uh, uh, but we're going to concentrate on the conversion of the Wesley brothers, John and Charles. Um, you know them because you sing their hymns. If you are an English-speaking person, and their hymns have been translated into other uh, languages, of course. Um, I think Charles Wesley, like 10,000 hymns, something ridiculous something like, crazy that. like that. Yeah. John has a few, too, I believe. Um, but so, uh, kind of fascinating stories, and, and really to understand uh, the Wesleys, you kind of got to understand England at this time, and maybe perhaps the whole European context. The um, <clears throat> industrialization is really, really kicking it up, and, and uh, uh, the uh, uneducated in England are uh, starting to get a little bit restless. Um, you have definitely uh, uh, one, literally a one in 99%. I think Noel talks about that. Like, there's yeah. maybe 1% that had ability to go to college. You have the Anglican church that um, maybe is having its problems uh, politically there with uh, certain, it's not a caste system, but it's certainly a class system there. Um, and uh, uh, in our last episode, I don't know when that will come out. We, we talked about different books and I, talked about um uh huxley's church and maxwell's demon uh, about science in the victorian age and uh huxley really uh uh, part of the reason why he was kind of anti-theistic way of doing science even though he didn't really necessarily disagree with the actual technical way that they were doing science was he was kind of one of those 99 percenters left out and because he was not a part of the Anglican establishment, because he didn't have the money, because he didn't want to take the uh, religious test to get into the big universities, um, buck the system there. And that, that goes back for, for centuries, really, uh, about uh, uh, the way that the working class was treated in England. And I, I remember reading this. This one book, I forget the title right now, The Managed Heart, I think, and it had to do with uh, vocation um, and uh, uh, the workplace and, and labor and uh, talking about this one situation where there were mothers who would go to the factory where their children were working and would feed them lunch because they didn't even get a lunch break. I mean, some horrific, horrific situations there. Uh, part of this also has to do with uh, alcoholism and the debauchery that was uh, uh, inevitable in this place. And, and so especially John Wesley, um, who, who was an Anglican pastor, I believe to begin with saw this and saw the Anglican church, not really ministering to, to the people that was, that were around their parishes. 
and maybe stuck into their kind of higher class, more genteel class. And uh, that bothered him a little bit. And uh, uh, John and Charles then both have uh, conversion experiences. And they um, do some mission work. Uh, John fails in the new in in the new world and comes back to England. Both of them, ironically, uh, find their conversion experience after reading some of Luther's works. So I believe one of them read Charles Romans. was reading the um, commentary on Galatians, and John was and Romans. Then I believe John overheard someone. I could okay. be wrong. Reading from the. Luther's preface to his commentary on Romans. Yeah, so and and so there's another Lutheran uh, English connection there. Um, they are eventually going to be the the forefathers, the fathers of what we now know as the Methodist Church, and 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 there's some problems theologically there with the idea of uh, the methods of well, eventually of sanctification of you know, that you can reach a certain level of perfection, not being sinless, but you can uh, uh, rid yourself of those uh, the sinful inclination. That's not correct. That's that's not the exact way to say it, but uh, there's some the problems. Manifestation of, you can make a whole lot of progress in the amount of sin that manifests itself in your life. Yeah. yeah. So uh, certainly some zealous people for um, uh, for people and for evangelism and really for um, um, America, this is hugely important because. Um, the Methodist Church via the hymns, but via also the theology of the two, uh, really going to kind of set the stage uh, for what we know as American Christianity here, if I can, if I can use that. I, I've always thought that pietism, now that would be a term that would be more continental, um, is the default religion of America, whether you're Roman Catholic or Lutheran or Baptist. Um, um, and maybe we can get into that a little bit, but uh, I'll kick it to you and, and see, see what you got to say about the Wesley brothers. Sure. I, the, I, I think you hit on a lot. I mean, this is a time when um, people are moving to the cities and the towns, and the, and the cities and towns are not very well equipped to um, provide what those people need, whether it be work or just basic living conditions. Um, you have areas of town that really have uh, no meaningful contact with the upper crust of society. Um, you know, you can have uh, two different Londons. Uh, and, and this is not something that's foreign to us today. Um, go to the Upper East Side of Milwaukee, and you're going to have a very different experience than you might have in some other areas of the city. Um in, in this, you know, you think of the boroughs in New York or um, south side of Chicago um, versus downtown, things of this nature. But you you have people who are, by you know, by default, basically members of the state church, of the Church of England, the Anglican Church, but are very underserved probably as far as meaningful contact with uh, the leaders of that church. And... Uh, so what, what the Wesleys are going to want to do is to go to those people, um, to go to those people, A, with the, the message of, uh, of the gospel as they understand it, but then also to, to try to go to those people to improve their lives, to increase literacy through the education of children, um, to, to help care for the poor, um, to help people struggling with alcoholism, uh, things of this nature. There's a legitimate concern for their, for their fellow man. Maybe if I can just hit on a few things, uh, Mike. One of the things you mentioned with the Wesleys, and this is something that plays into Wesleyanism or Methodism still today, 
is this idea of Christian perfection, which doesn't necessarily mean what it sounds like, um, that we're ever going to cease to to be sinner in this life. Um, but definitely the idea of a progressive sanctification, um, which there are plenty that are championed still today, um, but that essentially undermines justification by grace through faith. Um, the idea that uh, the Christ- that the will of the unbeliever is not bound and a lack of understanding of the fact that we are still sinner saints, um, we will still struggle after having come to faith. And I think the big shift then, it's interesting, both are, they tie their conversion experience to Luther and to two of his commentaries um, on books that are very explicit on these things, um, but is the loss of the emphasis on the bound will. Um, previously in England, kind of Calvinism had been the main theological influence. Calvin obviously um, taught the total depravity of human beings. Now, this does not mean total depravity, that everything in every person is evil. It just means there's not a part of a human being that hasn't been corrupted or tainted by evil. So that doesn't mean people aren't still capable of good things, civic righteousness. It just means there's no aspect of human life or of um, human faculties um, that that is not impacted by the fall into sin. And this shift away from the bound will is, I think, going to be the most important development in this time period. Um, the Wesleys were what we uh, in theology can call Arminians. I believe Jacob Arminius is the, the first, but I, I could be wrong on the first name. Uh, this is not Armenians, um, but Arminians. And they reacted to Calvinism and the idea that, um, you know, double predestination and God is sovereign and um, total depravity, bound will. And uh, they want there to be something in the believer that can respond to the gospel message, which is going to lead to revivalism in America. I mean, this is the train of thought um, that will end up with Charles Finney and uh, in modern revivalism as well, um, and American evangelicalism today. I mean, really, this is the mainstream thinking. And, and this is really going to affect how they try to carry out ministry then. They're going to go out and they're going to want to appeal. And so they're going to uphold some traditional Protestant doctrines, uh, most importantly, sola scriptura, but even that they're going to take in a different way. So um, there's going to be an, an emphasis on the individual or small small groups reading the scriptures, which eventually is going to what is you know what helps lead to all the denominations we have in English and American Christianity. Um, but there's going to be very much an openness to methods. Think Methodism, which is methods for personal growth and sanctification, but also um, can apply to, for methods for um, sharing the gospel. But um, they're willing to, to use new means for some of what they consider to be the old doctrines. But those means are going to be rooted in this view of the free will, that there's something to appeal to in the unbeliever. Uh, and this changes the type of preaching you're going to have. This influences the type of hymnody they're going to produce. Um, as you've talked about often, Mike, this is going to be reflected in worship and in the um, the various parts of worship that they construct. And so I think um, what they are to be very much commended for is their concern, even though they were of that upper crust. And John is, uh, you know, Oxford educated. Um, they were privileged. Um but a real concern for the common man and for all the people in the cities and in, in England as a whole, um, a great uh, work ethic. I mean, the amount of things that they accomplished, the number of sermons is just amazing. But I think what really becomes detrimental in the long term for Christianity as a whole, um, especially through 
the Wesleys and evangelicalism that develops out of that, not evangelicalism like traditional Lutheran evangelicalism, uh, and more so out of that than out of pietism, is going to be this idea of, um, you know, we need to make this appeal to the will, and to some extent, human beings are free. They're free before a conversion, um, to some extent, so you can uh, woo them into the faith, but also they're... um, an idea that they can be free from sin in a way that the scriptures don't teach after conversion. Um, that's not to say that we can't hopefully commit certain sins less or pray for the Lord to to save us from them, which he often does through suffering in the cross, right? Um, but, uh, but the idea that I can kind of will myself to, um, you know, this kind of astounding level of sanctification— um, that anyone who understands the simile and has tried to honestly, I think, lead the Christian life, um, it becomes a sanctification that becomes less dependent on Christ instead of more. And that's a theme we've hit on often, Mike. Yeah, maybe one note just to uh, repeat uh, about about worship. You know, if if you understand the human being as somebody that can be perfected or can, by method, progress... Uh, to a certain level of perfection. And this human being also has a free will, and it's just a matter of getting them to the point where they accept this and then therefore can accept these methods and can change their lives. If you believe that, your worship is going to be uh, a sales pitch. Um, It's going to be an appeal to that will. It's going to then be um, more dramatic's not the right word because I think that uh, the, the classic way of doing the divine service is very, very dramatic as heaven and earth come crashing together. Um, but it's going to be um, uh, appeal to emotions, appeal to reason, appeal to it, it really is kind of a sales sales pitch kind of thing and and if you can do some entertaining if you can do some really great long sermons kind of thing where you really get somebody riled up um, that fits your theology and it doesn't really necessarily fit uh, the classic way uh, of Christianity uh, again man their work ethic for crying out loud especially John Wesley you know uh, for any pastor who's complaining about their their uh, workload um you know read a biography on them or you know we talked about last time um uh loyola and 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 xavier uh you know yikes we got it pretty pretty easy when you think about it um but uh what i take from the the wesleys too is kind of what there was definitely a push against the institutional church at that point. So, uh, for instance, John starts preaching outside, which was just, uh, everybody is aghast at that. And uh, probably had some hecklers. It sounds like he had quite a few hecklers. And, and uh, uh, people, probably, I mean, drunks in yeah. the gathering. Um, definitely, yeah, he was preaching very early in the morning, too, uh, up into his, I want to say, 70s or 80s, he was doing that. And the miles that he put on horseback, it's just, it's just amazing. Um, but a very real and very legitimate uh, poke in the eye of the establishment. And the connection then to pietism on the, on the 
continent. It's different, but it definitely has an anti-institutional feel. More so not because, okay, there's this Anglican state kind of church thing. Probably more so what we call dead orthodoxy, right? So you have people that are just being too dogmatic and you're not, you're not really ministering to people. And that's a, that's a fair criticism. Um, uh, some of the other similarities then would be, um, uh, you know, these small group kind of things, um, anti-establishment, a move away from the concrete uh, sacraments, <clears throat> and therefore a move away from uh, traditional uh, uh, historic uh, liturgy kind of, kind of settings for the church service. Um, and, and the correct, uh, um, let's say the correct criticism of that is that you really do become more objective or more subjective than objective. Um, but and then also that kind of split between the physical institution, uh, the physical sacraments, how that gets played out in worship to much more of um, <clears throat> something that's personal and intimate and can be then more emotional and stuff like that. Although I, maybe that's a little maybe a little bit too unfair for the Wesley brothers that to, to say, okay, now they, you know, now, there's a direct line between the Wesleyans and, uh, you know, the, the, the preacher on TV and, you know, 1980, uh, Texas maybe is unfair, but there's a connection there, right? Theologically. And so, uh, you see, <clears throat> you see German pietism and you see the Wesleyans in the English world, and then they kind kind of come together, especially in America, and I think that's why we have um, the Christian ethos that we have here in America. Maybe that's not the right term, but um, the way we look at our lives and the way we look at our relationship with God, deeply personal, um, which can be a good thing, but also, okay, what what's the next step in my progress and um uh not so much de denominational loyalty but what can you do for me right now kind of thing i, I think there are some connections there and I don't want to dwell too much on pietism because we'll get into some of it hopefully when we have uh, Dan Van Voris on we're looking forward to that we uh just need to lock that down schedule wise on his book on um Johann Arndt um i have the I, I read that recently. I didn't share it in the book episode. He's, I should have, and he's from um, uh, Virtue in the Wasteland, another podcast yeah. on the 1517 podcast network, which we are a part of. And that's Johann Arndt, a prophet of Lutheran pietism um, by Daniel Van Voorhis. But, you know, uh, Wesley's life, uh, John Wesley's life, is pretty much going to span the 18th century, the 1700s. Pietism on the continent, um, it pops up several places, and, and, and for instance, the Netherlands. But we're going to be thinking the 17th century, and especially after the Thirty Years' War, and you kind of, and that's, that's an episode in and of itself, so we're not hitting that that much. But um, you kind of have this disenchantment with religion as uh, the Thirty Years' War is, to is tossed out there as being a religious war. To what extent it was religious is really up for debate because you have a lot of political things that are in play, too. Is religion um, why they're fighting or is it being used? Um, as part of the fight, and I think anyone who's ever um, paid attention to politics knows it can be both of those things or one of those things sometimes. Um, but uh, Johann Arndt is not necessarily a pietist, but he is going to influence later pietists, and he is going to write um, the rather famous book, True Christianity, which is one of the most read books for a long time uh, in Europe, published in a number of places, 
um, and becomes one of the most important devotional books of the time. Uh, following him, though, um, you're going to have people who develop his thought further. Uh, Jacob Spainer, who's going to write a preface to true Christianity, um, which becomes known as Pia Desideria, um, the piety we desire. And then Franca, who takes over for him. Uh, and Hala. Hala will become kind of the epicenter for pietism and really um, is known for all the social services, I, I guess we would call them, that pietism leads to the church providing, which are really wonderful things, orphanages and schools and care for the poor and things of this this nature, which becomes a model for what follows later. But what it, it bears in common with um, the Wesleys and Methodism is that um, none of these men necessarily consciously desired to leave the established church, the state church, or sought necessarily to encourage others to do so. But we see in both instances with the emphasis on the individual um, and with an emphasis on kind of a small group or the individual's take on Scripture instead of the church reading the Scriptures together and with the fathers, um, with sola scriptura becoming Scripture alone as an authority rather than Scripture being over under other authorities, but there being other authorities, and really a biblicism, a literalism uh, in Scripture. And that I don't mean that um, there's things that are literal in Scripture and we should take them literally, um, but this uh, kind of bullheaded reading of scripture um, that's just looking for clear rules and canon law and um, insisting on things that scripture doesn't necessarily insist on, um, which is where American evangelicalism, by the way, gets inerrancy as the starting point of theology rather than Christ, which is not a very Lutheran way to do theology, but American Lutherans fall into that, especially bad, after the batter for bad, the Bible. Bad apologetics. Yeah, too. and it really leads to a lot of bad evangel evangel evangelism, too, because sometimes you never get to Christ because you're going to fight about inerrancy rather than getting to Christ and then people understanding why the the scriptures are so trustworthy because they are the swaddling clothes of Christ. and um, Because Christ Jesus not, said so. <laughs> and he would not lie to us. Yeah, he says they, that they are um, trustworthy and sure. Um, but one of the things I want to hit on is that, that this, although they didn't intend to in both instances, and still to this day this leads to a, a good amount of sectarianism, which... Uh, either people leaving the church because they say, see, they can't even agree amongst themselves. How am I supposed to believe this? Um, but also uh, new denominations springing up again and again and again so that now you can have, you know, the first church of did Adam and Eve have an app, uh, a belly button, you know, whatever the case might be, um, which is, I think, really unfortunate. Um, there are There is a place for denominations, um, but there is also a place for bearing with one another um, in the church too and not breaking so easily, uh, especially over things that are open questions are not clearly defined in the Bible. But even when there are things that are, um, you know, secondary doctrines, I hate to use that term, but um, being willing to bear with and discuss um, and not just immediately think I'm going to found my own parish, um, whatever the case might be. I think this is a really troubling thing that develops. And, and so you can have in America today where people talk about American evangelicals as a block and often as a voting block, unfortunately. Um, but really, within that, um, under that label, you have thousands of denominations and some pretty significant differences. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know that people always realize that. So, um, you know, I think this would be one of the unfortunate things that develops. But in bo in all of these cases, they are reacting also to problems in the state church 
um, in many cases, uh, a lack of um, vibrancy and vigor and life in the state church, um, or uh, a concern for people who were being overlooked or perhaps missed by some of the leaders of the established churches where they served. Yeah, and, you know, sometimes we're maybe a little bit too harsh uh, on pietism. Again, we'll have a whole, uh, we'll have a whole uh, uh, episode on that. I'm sure. Um, I'm kind of think. I think about prohibition in America. I recently had uh, watched uh, Ken Burns' documentary on that. And uh, when I think about prohibition, I say, what what a foolhardy thing, you know. And but when you look at just the the struggles especially women went through uh, uh, in the late 1800s both both in England and America and living with these these drunkard husbands that would beat them and and all the problems man I'm not sure if I wouldn't have been you know I I don't know which way I would have voted would have wanted my husband to get some Jesus (laughs) right you know and so uh, and 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 when we look at pietism and we say you're not doing anything they're saying to the church, "You're not doing anything for for the people here. You know, you're 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 not ministering. You're only doing this academic work, and that's maybe a little bit unfair." And that's something that Pietism was big on too: is that you're not preaching to impress other pastors. You should be preaching for your people. And I think that is something also yeah. that can be taken very well, because I um I really struggle when I'm listening to a pastor who I can tell is just wrote his sermon not to say anything wrong or because he wanted to impress a few people, uh, and and not because God has given him his very word, not just to tell people about, but to proclaim both in law and in gospel. And those are two very different things. And you can think of Gerhard Ferdi's, you know, uh, uh, theology is for, for proclamation. proclamation. Um, and so pietism, when you think about just every other ism out there and movement that we just, we go, that was clearly wrong we don't want to fall into that it could be marxism it could be socialism it could be um vandalism well maybe not vandalism but although you know the vandals i mean come on you know were they really that you know should we give them a whole verb mechanism yeah mechanism not so much um but i've always taken it this way that they're probably asking all the right questions they're reacting to something that was clearly wrong, probably another ism, and their answers may be wrong. And in many cases, in pietism for sure, many of their answers were wrong. But to have a little first charity, and so then you can have some clarity on the situation. That rhymed. I know, I, I just thought about that, and it was on purpose. That's a T-shirt. Have a little, have a little charity so that you can have some clarity on the situation. You, you, not only will you be able to um, be sympathetic, but also be able to combat the the, the incorrect way that those um, questions were answered. Um, and that's that's a whole different thing than just saying you're wrong. That's it. Blah blah blah. You know, like uh, University of Wittenberg had a whole list that. I think it was Jacob Spainer that, you know, here's 300 things that you're wrong on, (laughs) you know, instead of maybe saying, yeah, we probably should. um, Yeah, we probably should uh, maybe correct some of the things that we we do that aren't aren't always healthy. So uh, that's maybe just a life lesson for any institution, but especially the church. 
Yeah, I don't have a, a lot more on this, Mike. What? T- how long are we at? Twenty-seven. Um, but uh, I, and, and part of the reason I think we won't go too long in this is there, we need to do a pietism episode at some point. Um, we need to do a Thirty Years War episode at some point, and I think it, at some point we should probably do an American evangelicalism episode where we kind of talk about, you know, what does that even mean, or what is an American evangelical? Are Lutherans one of them? Um, you know, what are mainline churches? Stuff like that. Um, so if Peter listens to this, hopefully he can write those down. We just, poor Peter, um, re- recorded an episode right before this on books, and we must have thrown out 50 book titles. Um, hopefully Peter does not feel the need to put all those in the show notes. But um, I would just say, uh, you know, there are there are things to really um, respect and be uh, in awe of with um the Wesleys and some of the the proto-pietists and the pietists. They did the mission work that we're here because of them. Right. And especially the Wisconsin Synod. Yeah, I mean, these came from mission societies. Uh, a true zeal for people. I mean, to, it, it, is, it is a gift to see people. It's very easy to go through life and not see people. Um, you drive the same road back and forth. You work at the same place. You go to the same restaurant. And there's whole swaths of society that you miss um, that they were willing to walk around to the other side of town uh, and see people, I think, is very commendable. Um, A desire to want to take God's word to people, uh, once again, very commendable. Um, From a Lutheran perspective, especially from a confessional Lutheran perspective, I think some of the big challenges, and this is uh, some enlightenment themes perhaps coming out, but this is going to be very impactful for later Christianity, especially in um, the English-speaking world, is the idea of a somewhat free will, to whatever extent you want to take that, um, and thinking that methods or means and the message are um, completely divorced in a way that I don't think that they are. Uh, I think those two things will present a lot of challenges, and I don't know that American Christianity has ever or maybe even will ever recover, and I think we've seen a lot of this make its way into Lutheranism as well. Um, and, uh, I mean, from the from Schmucker, uh, or in early American history, and his, you know, kind of Aug- Augsburg uh, what was it, recension or whatever you it know, was. He, he's the reason why we're, the, we're in the jam we're in. Yeah, we're, you know, we're going to take out the parts of the Augsburg Confession that don't fly with Americanism. Um, so I think there's there's things to admire, but there's also things to really try to learn from and take as cautions um, that, uh, you know, the bound will is what we need to be telling the world about because whether or not people admit it, um, that is what they're struggling with in life. And, uh, uh, you know, to pe- make people aware of that, um, in order to be able to reach them, I think is something that the church needs to be able to do to gloss over it and pretend there's something in them just, you know, that is going to make them good with God and that, uh, you know, they're going to start um, really sinning less and less and less, I think is a dangerous message. It's like the person who comes to faith and puts 57 bumper stickers on their car and only listens to music that mentions Jesus um, or uh maybe doesn't mention Jesus, but talks about bridges and waters and rivers and fires. But um, and uh, but then they fall into some sort of sin and think they've botched it and there's no hope. Um, I think we can really set people up for failure, and I think it's also a recipe for making fantastic atheists. That's absolutely true. I mean, when you 
think about the most famous atheists, um, many of them came from um, uh, some pietistic backgrounds, uh, whether it be in Germany or or in America. Um, some kind of well, let's just say law-based, very law-based. Um, Nietzsche and Kant. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, and, and, and I like what you said about the free will. You know, this is. It sounds like such a downer, but unless you understand that, you can't really understand the it's gospel. It's actually freeing when yeah. you understand it. It's freeing from your own from your own um, your own disaster of a life. And uh, so, if you if you concentrate on the bound will when you preach the law and you do your worship, the gospel is oh so much sweeter. And from there, well, you really do have freedom to let the bird fly. Every evening when the sun goes down Get with my party and I begin to cry I don't care what the people are thinking I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink I set them up, another round I set them up, another round I set them up, another round One more round won't get me down